beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have Paul here at our epistle, who kind of sounds like he's being a little apologetic for being so bold in his writing. I want you to think about boldness just for a moment, some of the characteristics of boldness. We'll see, I think, as we look at Paul, a great example for us as Christians to follow and what boldness in the Christian life looks like or what, what are the ingredients, what goes into Christian boldness. We might think of boldness as daring, someone who dares to do something and a racer, think of Earnhardt, or uh, any number of other people that dare to do something that's kind of scary, uh, kind of risky. You can think of all sorts of people that dare to do things. So there's a, there's a boldness that we can see in that daring, but also boldness as maybe a forceful personality or forceful character. And you've all met people like that as well. Some of you are them, where your personality just comes out. You're, you're bold in personality and character. Uh, you can walk into a room and move people around by looking at them or speaking just a word or two and so on. It's kind of that boldness in character and, or even in leadership. But what about boldness as a Christian? As a Christian, is it our requirement or is it right for us to walk in the room with, you know, thousand-watt eyes and make sure everyone's doing the right thing and moving people around? Is that Christian boldness? I don't think so. But I think Paul does give us an example of this. What it looks like to be bold for Christ and how that works in his life as a Christian. So Christians, as we think about this, as we look at the Apostle Paul and really follow him as he follows Christ, we're following someone here who's being bold in Christ as a Christian, but as a redeemed man. That's something, as we look at Jesus, that's maybe a little bit of a hang-up for us, is we're looking at a sinless man. We're looking at a man who certainly served the Lord and did it right. He kept the commandments of God, and so in that sense, he's very much an example for us. But we don't have the kind of example like we do in Paul, where he got into such a heated you know, debate with some co-workers that they had to part ways, and there's a paroxysm in the church. Okay, so we have, we have a man who knows what it is to be a sinner. He knows what it is to be the chief of sinners. Yet he also knows what it is to be redeemed in Christ Jesus and to serve him. Well, okay, well now we're talking. Right, that's where we are. We're, we're sinners. We're fallen. We're weak. We need a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, just as Paul did. And it's by the very grace of God in Paul, the ministry of Christ to him, that gave him the particular character qualities of boldness that we're going to examine and will give them to us as well, Christian. We should seek these characteristics of boldness from the Lord, that we should be faithful to the Lord in our lives, which certainly includes boldness. So Paul first is a... He's bold as a minister of Christ. Let's read just the text we're working on right now, starting at verse 14. Well, really 15. I myself am satisfied about it. You remember, as we had talked about last week, here's Paul talking to the Roman church that he's never been to, never met, that doesn't know, you know, know some people there, because he knows a lot of people, and they travel to Rome. Uh, but he's never been to Rome. But he's, he is satisfied, he is confident in the work of God, in the Church of Jesus Christ, in the Church of Jesus Christ at Rome, where he hasn't been, to the point where he can say he's satisfied or he's confident uh, in, in them, his brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written you very boldly by way of reminder. Again, a little side note there. It's interesting to think of Paul reminding them when he had not met them. 
Right? He hadn't been there. So he's reminding them of the gospel that they had received from another gospel minister. Right? He's reminding them of that because of the grace given me by God. So Paul wrote this way. He wrote boldly. He taught boldly because of the grace of God given him. And he has given him to, verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. The word minister here is a peculiar word, uh, at least in the New Testament. It's not the regular word to think of. This one is a, a, a public servant, one who does public works on behalf of the state or on behalf of whatever institution that they're, that they're part of. Uh, a public worker who oftentimes, in fact most of the time, certainly all the time in the Bible, is a religious figure as well. Not just a, a, a public figure you might see in a secular sense. So he just, he's just a governor. There's no religious significance to the governor. That's really a strange way for us to think. Though I think as I say that, you'd probably say, yeah. If I said there is a religious significance to the governor, you might say, well, what are you talking about, Pastor? What's that mean? Well, I think just we're in a situation here in the modern world where we, we can have an area that's secular and it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to do with God. Over there, right? God stuff's over here. But that's not the way it is in the ancient world or in the medieval world, and that's just not the way it is. Uh, we kind of think things that way. We separate it out and compartmentalize them nicely. But this word minister is one of those words that clearly shows this thing together because it's a public figure who's doing public works, but almost always in some religious capacity as well. When the leader gets up and, and speaks or, or does a work, a service to the, to the community, say to Rome or to the city, which is kind of more how it would go to the city they're in, uh, they're leading in this ministerial servant sort of way. But they're a function, it's a function of public function of the state or of the government, but also a religious. And the thing kind of comes together. And so Paul says he's a minister of Christ. He's a public servant. He's out in the open representing Christ Jesus. He's a public servant of Jesus, the Christ of God. He's a public minister. And he's not just a public minister in Jerusalem. He's not just a public minister among the Jews. But this public ministry that Paul has is one to the nations. Paul's mission, his ministry, is to the nations. God sent him to be a public minister to all the nations of the world. Thus, we have an outward-bound message. Something here, Paul's ministry is outward-bound. It's going out. And we've examined the life of Paul before. You can see he's moving. And he's always taking this message out. He's pushing it out and pushing it out and pushing it out. Now, one thing we'll see as we work through this text this morning, that there's a lot of priestly stuff in here. Some of it comes out in the words that are very clear. Uh, but all this, some kind of priestly service, and we'll come to talk about priestly service in a moment more directly. But do note this, that as Paul takes this gospel out, as he takes this good news out, as he, as he takes it and proclaims it, he is proclaiming the great priestly sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The root of everything is that Jesus, the great high priest of God, gave himself as an offering in the flesh to God for sinners. An acceptable gift that God received, the gift of Jesus Christ, his offering, and the offering is himself, his very body, his life, and his life's blood. And that's what Paul, as a public minister, is going to proclaim. Something has happened back here in Jerusalem a year or two ago, Paul's, Paul's preaching, it's a game changer. I come to declare to you the Messiah of God has come. He suffered. He died. He was buried. And he came back to life. And usually that's what the sermon ends. But that's what he's declaring. He's going out to the nations as a public minister, a servant of Christ, to declare Christ's 
priestly service to the world. Right? To announce it to the nations. That is his ministry to make Jesus known and to do so boldly. It certainly takes an enormous amount of courage to stand up in the name of Christ and declare the crown rights of King Jesus to the nations. There's a boldness there. And Christian, it's not a boldness that Paul worked up and you know, he read books on how to be bold and practice being bold. I, I doubt it. He might have. We don't really know. But we do know it's a gift of grace to him. Exactly as he says it here. This is by the, by the grace given me by God, this is what I'm doing. I write boldly and I'm a minister for Christ to the nations. So first Paul is bold as a minister of Christ, declaring Jesus, speaking of Jesus, declaring who he is and what he has accomplished, which is to say the person and work of Jesus the Messiah. He's also bold as a priest of God. Now oftentimes we'll think of the offices in the Old Testament in particular, and of course they're in the New Testament as well, and we'll, we'll throw out there prophet, priest, and king. Those are kind of handles that work well. And think about the nature of a prophet. It's, it's interesting because they all kind of mix together in certain ways, uh, in, in both an authority and a declaration and representation, all that's kind of in each of them. But to simplify things, we could say a prophet does what? Speaks. He declares, right? He, he, he's, he's a mouthpiece. He speaks on behalf of God. He's a speaker. What's a king do? He rules. Right? He exercises the authority and, and rules. So we have a prophet that speaks on God's behalf, and we have a king that rules men and then women and children and, and dominion over the earth on God's behalf. But the priest, that's a little bit weirder one, huh? Because what, what's priestcraft? What do priests have to do with? they got a lot to do with blood through the Old Testament. They have a lot to do with sacrifices and the gore of the, uh, the altar. But what their real function is in all that priestly gore, is to represent the people of God and God to the people. And a priest doesn't show up empty-handed. A priest shows up offering to God, bringing something to God, rendering something, a gift, an offering to God. And it usually has to do, particularly in the Old Testament, with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, and priestcraft is wrapped up in that shedding of blood. To represent the people to God and represent God to the people. Now, even as the priests would pour out the blood or splash the blood on the people, you can read or uh, sprinkle them with it, they're representing God to the people. His salvation, His righteousness, His redemption to the people in those actions that they're doing. As they sacrifice to God, they're representing the people to God. They're kind of standing between one party, God, and the other party, God's people. The priest stands in the middle, representing them both, again, through blood. Now, Paul preached the gospel of Jesus' blood shed, the end of the sacrificial system. Centuries and centuries of sacrifices that end because Jesus came. He offered himself as a sacrifice. He is the offering. And Paul says, I preach to you him. I preach to you the one who has been sacrificed. I preach to you the actual high priest of God. But in doing that, Christian, he poured himself out as well. He poured his life out as well. And that's a priestly rendering. He's he's pouring himself out in order to make the great high priest known to the nations. 
Look over at Matthew chapter 16. Just a few verses, starting at verse 24. Paul is an example of pouring himself out for the gospel, for Christ. But that's exactly what every Christian is to do. Verse 24, Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose, sorry, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each one according to what he has done. I'll read the last verse because it's right there in the kingdom part. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is an excellent you know, side note on the eschatology that there's something going to happen in this generation that's the coming of the kingdom with power and with glory, and even those standing there are going to see it. Yet at the same time, he's also looking for the judgment, the final judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ, the consummation of this. So you can see this kind of now and not yet thing going on in this text, and we'll see it come up later as well that Jesus is in, in his high priestly capacity, inaugurates the new covenant, brings us into these promised realities. They've been promised all through the generations of the prophets, but here we have in Jesus Christ in the new covenant, but we're not fully there yet. It's not, it's, not, it's not come to its consummation in this covenant. So we have that, we can see that in the text here too, but that leaves us in the middle. And in the middle is the place where, Christian, God calls us to pour ourselves out. To give ourselves away. Because we can't outgive Him. Paul put his life out there. He poured it out. You can go read Second. Second uh, Corinthians, and see all the crazy stuff he had to deal with. In order to make Christ known, he poured his life out. A Christian, we have the same situation for ourselves. If we're going to follow Christ, we're going to take up our cross and follow him. The cross is not for comfort. It's a trial. It's a death. He says, whoever wants to save his life, you know any people that want to save their lives? Yeah, like everyone. Right? Like everyone you meet. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, Jesus says. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel, he will find it. We're called to be priests in the sense of this, pour ourselves out. We are the offerings. Our lives are poured out like a libation, like a drink offering before the Lord. And so what? So what if you give it all away and you end up broke and penniless and dead? Praise the Lord. You know Christ Jesus. You have life eternal. You've lost nothing. You've gained everything. Jesus says, everything you give up in this life, I'll pay you back a thousandfold. You don't even worry about that. Just pour yourself out. Don't try to save your life and keep it. Give it away and pour it out. Christian, you'll never outgive God, who is the example in His Son, Jesus Christ, who literally poured His blood out for us that we should be redeemed. He's the great high priest, and he calls us into his priestly activity, which is certainly declaring boldly Jesus, but also living our lives in such a way that we know we're expendable. Do you know that, Christian? You are 100% expendable for the gospel. It's not the other way around. Right? We're to pour ourselves out in the love of neighbor, certainly in the love of God, who's given us these, the, the gift of Christ Jesus, 
in bold declaration and light poured out for the kingdom. Finally, we have the offering of the Gentiles, and this may be the strangest and most interesting as we come to it. Um, let's read that. An acceptable offering, Paul says, back to Romans. So there's grace given Paul, verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, that's what we're just talking about, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. What is an acceptable offering? What is something that can be is acceptable to God? We might say the word acceptable has this feeling of it's, it, it's, it's, the gift or offering given is engineered to elicit some kind of happiness or pleasure on the side of the person who receives it. It's kind of this idea of acceptable offering or acceptable gift. Well, we're offering something. Paul here is offering something to God. <coughs> Excuse me. And he wants it to be an acceptable gift, an acceptable offering, a pleasing offering to God himself. Now, I admit freely that... The notion of pleasing God, God's pleasure, and especially God's pleasure as it has to do with us, or creation at all, I should say, is deeply mysterious. In other words, the unchanging, absolute God who is himself, pleased in himself and with himself eternally, yet somehow in covenant he comes to us and he says, I want you to please me. I want you to bring an offering that's going to please me. Well, we don't increase God. We don't increase his pleasure in any way. Yet that's how he reveals himself and tells us to, to live and so on. And what Paul here reveals of his own ministry, that he wants it to be pleasing to God. Now again, if we're, if we're going to talk about pleasing God at all, we've got to continually go back to Christ. We've got to go back to Messiah. That's where it all That's the foundation of everything, to please God, even in the Christian life. Flip over to uh, John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me, and He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And then it says, and he was, As He was saying these things, many people believed. So you can... See, Jesus revealing himself as the great I am, as Jehovah, as eternal God. Yet the distinction of, he's the Son, not the Father. He, he receives from the Father and teaches what he's heard from the Father. And he always does what pleases the Father. Now, what did Jesus always do? What's the recipe for pleasing the Father, Jesus style? He kept his commandments. Isn't that, isn't that the entire point? He obeyed his Father. He kept the commandments of God. That's what pleases God. Now, in ourselves, we kind of don't have that option. It's an option we don't have. It's, we're gone. We're sinners all the way down to the bottom of our feet, all the way up to our heads. There's nothing pleasing God in that. So we must please God in another, and that is in Jesus Christ. So that's the first step to pleasing God, is resting in Christ Jesus. The one who did all the things that pleased God. And here's how it works, and this is very important. All those works that Christ did that please the Father, as you believe on Jesus Christ, are imputed to you. God counts them to you. Not because you've done them. You haven't. Christ did them. 
but they're imputed to you. God counts them to you. Even as he counts your sin and wickedness to Christ on the cross, who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's the reason that the Son who pleased the Father, why should the Father turn his back as it were on the Son? He's done everything that's pleased him. He did it for you. His good works are counted to you. Your wickedness is counted to him. That's the nature of the redemption we have in Christ Jesus. And then, of course, he grows us in Christ Jesus. We believe on him, and we're justified. We're forgiven of our sins. We're received as righteous. Not because we're righteous, but because Christ is. Christ was, and he died on the cross for us. And then we start modeling them by God's power, our lives, after Christ Jesus. Not only are we forgiven, but we're now active in trying to please the Lord, because we're in Christ Jesus, who pleased the Lord. It's an important reality. That is the gospel. That's the good news, Christian, that you please God not in yourself, but preeminently and fundamentally in Christ Jesus and resting in him. And then we're now set on a life of seeking to please the Lord in Christ Jesus. So Jesus pleases God by his obedience, which is the mark. Christian, it's the mark of the, of, of the life of the Christian is to obey God. Obedience isn't like optional. Obedience is part of the deal. And in fact, as Paul talks about his gospel ministry to the nations, he says, my call was to bring the Gentiles into obedience to the gospel. To receive the gospel, to rest in Christ, and then to serve the God who has sent his son, Jesus Christ, for our salvation. And of course, this is only possible by the work of the Holy Spirit. God the Father sent the Son, and the Holy Spirit comes and brings us into this work of Jesus Christ. And in fact, as we look at Paul's ministry here, all those Gentile nations Paul's going out to and has his sights on to take the gospel, to take the good news out to, are going to be sanctified there by the Holy Spirit. I'll cut this little part short, but remember Peter, uh, as he's on Simon Tanner's rooftop awaiting lunch, and he sees the sheep come down with all the unclean animals and... and, uh, and God says, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. And Peter says, no, I've never eaten anything unclean. Uh, they're, they're dirty. These animals are filthy. Right? They're unclean. And God says, what I have cleansed, don't call unclean. That's what we're talking about here in this text. It's the Gentile nations who, for countless generations, all the way back, are unclean. Worship false gods. The gods of the heathen. They're idols and helpless. Well, that's what we're talking about. And they're unclean because they worship them. They worship themselves. They worship anything but the true and living God. But the Holy Spirit has been sent in Christ Jesus to sanctify the nations. To bring the nations into relationship with God himself. And that could be positionally. In other words, before Jesus Christ and his work, the nations were outside. And then in the New Covenant, it's opened up to draw the nations in by proclamation. There's our first step, that bold proclamation of Jesus Christ. By the pouring out of our lives as Christians to bring the nations in. And then, of course, here, as we, uh, like Paul and Paul, offer them to God. But Paul's offering to God here is the world full of nations to God as an offering. To God as a gift, do you see? Can you think of a more audacious gift? Here, how about the whole world? All the Gentile nations who were once unclean but now are cleansed, are sanctified in the Holy Spirit... Offer them to God. Here, God, here's a gift. All of the nations. Signed, Paul. That's what he's offering. That's his offering to God. That's what he's bringing to come and worship. That's what he's putting on the altar, his gift to God. 
a world full of nations, sanctified in the Holy Spirit. Now we talk about that positionally. Right? This is something that's gone on in the New Covenant, and Paul's operating in it. But also personally, that the nations would come to obedience. Don't you read something about that in the Great Commission somewhere? Like we're supposed to obey what Christ said and teach all the nations to do that too? That's what Paul has in mind. We're oftentimes just thinking of one, two, these people. We need to do that. We need to relate to people one-on-one and preach the gospel to them one-on-one. But do you see Paul's grand vision here? He says, it's by the grace of God given me that I boldly proclaim Christ. I'm a minister of Christ. I pour out my life as a priest in priestly service for Christ so that I can turn around and take these nations that I minister to and offer them to God as an offering. And that's the job of the Christian church, and that's the job of all of us, at one level or another. Now, we're not all apostles. We can ask the rhetorical question, are all apostles? No. Paul has some particular works to do here. But we're supposed to mimic those in our own capacities, in our own lives, with our own connections. And so I want to close with that. Think about these three things we looked at with the Apostle Paul. Boldly proclaiming Christ, boldly pouring himself out, as a priestly offering himself, and finally, boldly giving God a sanctified world of nations as a priestly offering. In what ways, Christian, do you need, and do I need, to progress at boldly proclaiming Christ? It's interesting to think about, quite convicting right off the bat. If I heard somebody, if I walked out the door here, and uh, I heard somebody saying nasty stuff about my wife, or about Ray's wife, or whoever, you know, I think I'd stand up and say, you need to shut your mouth. But I hear him walk by and blaspheme, I say nothing. How is that? It's interesting because I love the Lord more than I love my wife. I love her a lot. I love the Lord more than I love Vicky, etc. But I'll more readily stand up for these lesser loves than for a greater love. And again, it's not even that I have to defend anything. Christ can defend himself. I'm just a mouthpiece. I just have to say something. I have to declare something. In fact, I'm a preacher. <laughs> I'm supposed to declare Christ. And yet I'm not bold. I'm weak. Why is that? Why is there such weakness in my flesh? And yours too. Let's pray for boldness in proclaiming Christ. And it really is a proclamation. A statement of who Jesus is and what he's done. Here is the great Christ God promised. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He is the Savior of the world. And he's now calling people into his kingdom. I'm just letting you know. It can be that simple. Let's pray for boldness as we proclaim Christ in our own lives, to our own neighbors, our own friends, because God's given each of us that ministry. We're not all Paul, gallivanting all around the world, like one son. We're here. And God's given us this ministry here. He gave Paul that one there. So let's look in our own lives and seek boldness in proclaiming Christ in our relationships. Also, boldness in pouring ourselves out, like a priestly libation. We so often think of ourselves as so precious. Our lives as so precious. And indeed, to some, they are. But, as I said before, we're all expendable. And not only are we expendable, but God promises he'll raise us up at the last day. Christ says, I got you. No one can take you out of my hand. No one can take you out of my Father's hand. I'll raise you up at the last day. So what do you have to lose? Nothing to lose. Everything to gain. We need to have boldness in that and, and just pouring ourselves out, being expendable for the gospel. And finally, 
this bold gift of a sanctified world of nations that Paul wants to put on the altar and give to God, what crazy dream do you have to give to God? Not for yourself, not for your own aggrandizements of fame, but what do you want to give to God? What offering do you want to say, God, I want you, I, I, this is, I love you, I want you to have this. I want this to please you, God. What offering do you have to give to the Lord? Well, may the Holy Spirit make it very clear in your mind right now how it is that you're to be bold, that he'll give you the gifts. This is the grace of God, not only in proclaiming and pouring yourselves out, but even in rendering offerings to God. As we come and gather together, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, this is the time to pay those. So I am that we're on the altar and say, okay, God, week by week, uh, we keep tabs on, on our lives and what we're trying to do, what we're trying to accomplish for the Lord, what we're trying to give to the Lord. That could be in our marriages. It could be with our neighbors, how we're relating to our neighbors and coming week by week and checking in with the Lord. Say, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to serve you here, Lord. I want to give this to you as a gift. So let's ask again and be quiet on it. What do you need to give to the Lord as an offering? What grandiose thing do you need to give to the Lord as an offering of worship? to his holy name. So Christians, let us be bold. Let us seek that boldness in the name of the Lord, because again, God gives these gifts, and we find as we look at them, we're needy. We're needy of these gifts, but he is good and gracious and generous. And if you have any questions about that, all you have to do is look to the cross. There is no end of the generosity of God as his son's blood is poured out for our salvation. And at the empty tomb, the the sign of victory and glory, that we can't lose. All we can do is gain, Christian. So let us therefore be bold in our ministry, bold in pouring ourselves out, and bold in our worship of the Lord. Amen.